Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That whistle in the distance, that's the Gunner's bandwagon about to take off. True, it was a lackluster performance against Newcastle, but that means nothing when we look back at the table. After match day 20's results, Arsene Wenger's team is too clear at the top of the Premier League. Elsewhere, Leicester and Spurs draw the Manchester clubs come good. Pulis puts the Potters in their place, while the only thing epic about the six-pointer at the Stadium of Light was the reminder this continues to be an epically bad season for Aston Villa. Welcome everybody to the World Soccer Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. We're now into 2016. We're also now officially into the second half of the season, which means, gentlemen, we are out of excuses. Time to bring our aim game to the pod, which is why I'm thrilled to welcome my two longtime partners in crime, Lawrence McKenna, and back from his quest to the next soccer frontier, Kartik Krishnayar. Kartik, tell us about your two weeks in India. Well, it was... Um... It was interesting. I mean, the, the thing about India that I've noticed uh, is that in, in past trips, how, how popular the Premier League is there. But I saw uh, more coverage of the Bundesliga and the championship there this time than I had ever seen before. The other European leagues still not 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 visible, with the exception of Real Madrid and Barcelona, uh, where who are visible all over the world. But it seems uh, the Bundesliga making a push there, uh, Bayern's uh, uh, stature has helped them in India. And then the championship uh, getting a lot more exposure in that country now because there are so many teams that Indians have watched in their limited shelf life, li- limited historical knowledge of English football that most of them have. So many of those clubs that they've seen in the Premier League for many years are now in the championship. So there is an incentive to show Fulham. There's an incentive to show Leeds. There's an incentive to show uh, clubs that have been rele- QPR, clubs that have been relegated uh, more recently. Lawrence, it's been... An interesting week for you and I. You skipped out on me the last podcast, and you and I had a really good show in midweek. How was your New Year's Eve? And I'm just really glad that you're here with us again this week. Is that sincere? I yeah. Uh, yeah, love, lovely to be here again. It was a lovely uh, start to 2016. What I enjoyed most uh, over that time was everyone speaking about uh, how everyone was so good in 2015, but 2016, they need to do it in the first few months. And then we forget how everyone didn't do that in 2015. Are you talking um, about personally or as far as soccer teams? No, I'm talking about Arsenal. Oh, okay. Well, speaking of Arsenal, we came into this weekend with two teams tied at the top of the Premier League. Arsenal's superior goal difference giving them the edge over Leicester City. So it only seems right, breaking down the action from the 20th match day in the Premier League, that we start with the co-leaders, Arsenal hosting Newcastle. Edged um, an uneven game with a late Lauren Koscielny goal, while Leicester was held scoreless at the King Power Stadium by a Bournemouth team that played the last 34 minutes down a man. Lawrence, let's start with you. Arsenal 1, Newcastle 0. I don't know what we should go with here as far as talkables, because every once in a while you see a good team have to grind out a result, and ultimately with the 1-0 win, seems like that's what Arsenal did. I don't know if it was actually grinding out, though. I feel like Newcastle... Yeah, how would you characterize uh, it? Well, they didn't make it into a grinding result. Um, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That that seems more like a cliche that I use. There wasn't much of a grind to this one. Yeah, it, it was actually one where we feel Newcastle played 
one of the better games of the season so far. And Steve McLaren was speaking post-match about how he felt his team at least deserved to draw from this one. Uh, they pushed Ozzy Perez out wide, Mitrovic down the middle, Wijnaldum much more central, and so therefore trying to run the midfield a little bit. I think Arsenal struggled to break down their back line. Um, and a lot of the things that people have criticised Newcastle for this season, you know, uh, the, the underwhelming elements of their game, actually seem to be there and were fairly present away from home. Um, Arsenal struggled to counter with some of that, I think. But ultimately, you know, we we, we saw again that there are some truisms about Arsenal. You can guarantee their centre-backs will score at some point. Um, <laughs> and you guarantee that in that match, it'll be the game where their strikers don't score. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, basically, I feel like Newcastle did actually match them up quite well. And so I think, you know, when you say ground out, I see what you mean, but I don't know if that characterises the, the game very well. I'd be interested to know how Kartik thought Arsenal played thus. Yeah, Kartik, how, how, how did you think uh, Arsenal played? I think a lot of people will come away from this one somewhat disappointed in the Gunners' performance, given that they're trying to assert themselves at tit- as title favourites at this point. But in another respect, we've seen Arsenal drop points with performances like this in the past. We have, but that's also a bit cliche-ish, to be perfectly honest with you. It's been it's been several years since uh, they, they they would lose these sorts of games. I mean, if you look, if you think back to last season when Arsenal started so poorly and then came on, and then the, the previous season when they led the the league for most of the season. But what about and, this and season it, in November? They had a series of draws and uh, poor performances against lesser teams away from home, where uh, we started to wonder whether this was old Arsenal back. Well, that's true. That's a good point. But uh, this this idea that Arsenal doesn't grind out results uh, and that they don't win some of these games away from home and then at home, if they play poorly, they drop points. That's kind of a three or four year old uh, dated theory. They've, they've started uh, getting those sorts of results in, in, re- in recent campaigns. Uh, but it's a good point. November, that Norwich game stands out. Uh, the game which uh, Wenger had them take a 12 minute flight <laughs> from uh, from uh, North London to uh, to East Anglia. Uh, they. they this was a poor performance, but I, I guess they got the three points. Uh, Newcastle is a team that on their last trip to North London, they actually took three points uh, from, from Spurs. It's one of Spur, uh, Spurs' two losses this season. So I, I guess all, all is fair, but they're, they're continued to, and I know we get a lot of complaints every week, Richard, you and I, about our analysis of Arsenal, but there continue to be these lingering doubts. Uh, even when I'll put something positive about Arsenal and potentially being winning the title and being the, the favorite, uh, to win the title on Twitter, there were very educated fans, not just your, your random Twitter trolls, trolls, but very educated fans saying, uh, c- coming back at me saying, well, that, that doesn't matter. We know they can never do it the whole season. So the swoon is coming. And until they prove that it's not, I think there's still going to be questions. And every game will be microanalyzed and, and, and broken down maybe a little more. There'll be uh, more over analysis of Arsenal than any other club in the league, just because we have so little faith in, in so many of these players. You know, I, I still think though that there's a, there's a lot more to this. We saw Olivier Giroud in this one. We saw Walcott in this one. We saw Oxley Chamberlain in this one. Meza Ozil was in there, and they weren't able to break down that back line until it came to um, a, a set piece essentially, and that's and that required Lauren Koscielny. And I know that we took, you know, I, I think a lot of it seems to be about people angling for uh, setting up a narrative or trying to change the narrative in some ways, because it, it doesn't seem like, uh, I know, it, it maybe seems like some of the played out cliches have almost become uncool to say about Arsenal. But maybe they're not entirely inaccurate. I think Arsenal, maybe for different reasons, is as flawed as they have been over this last decade or so we've seen from Arsene Wenger's teams. The one thing that is different this year, gentlemen, is the rest of the league around them. And I think that gives Arsenal a very good chance to claim this year's title. And I think we need to look no farther than the co-leader coming into the weekend. Leicester City obviously isn't a traditional power in this league, but they were even with Arsenal at the top of the table. And they had Bournemouth, second uh, lower uh, half side at home, on Saturday, you would think that they would be a good bet to get three points in this one. And despite Simon Francis being sent off with a very sketchy red card in the 57th minute, Lester Kartik still couldn't pull out a victory in this one. So a missed opportunity for the Foxes, perhaps not a grave missed opportunity, but still they're now two points back of the Gunners. Yeah, a little bit disappointing they couldn't get a goal. They, they certainly created enough chances. There was enough pressure uh, going forward, and, and we've seen uh, the return of Tinkerman the, these last few matches. Uh, Inler was inserted against uh, Man City. That that was very effective, and, and they were able to shut City down. Uh, and then in this match, we saw uh, Nathan Dyer, who's on loan from Swansea, 
uh, who was a player we thought when he was loaned to Leicester would, would feature prominently. And because their wide play with Albrighton and Mares has been so good, he hasn't gotten much of a run in the team. We saw him come on and, and, and create a lot of chances or, 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 or create chances for other players. Uh, but they couldn't finish. Uh, Vardy's finishing confidence seems to be gone. Uh, he had one which he, which he hit off the crossbar. Mm. Uh, so, and uh, Arthur Vorich had some nice saves. Uh, he's come good for Bournemouth. But there just seems to be um, now the, the kind of rub of the green. And, and in spite of that, Francis sending off uh, the, the, the luck that Leicester were getting uh, the first 16, 17 matches of the season seems to be running out. That having been said, I'm a little more convinced about Leicester now than I was a month or six weeks ago, just because we've seen the swoon now from Leicester, and the swoon doesn't look that bad. They still look like a top-six side. Maybe they don't look like league champions, but they still look like a team that can qualify for Europa League, let's say. And we thought when it went bad for them, we might be looking at a team that's, that, that looks like a relegation, relegation fodder. Instead, I think we're still looking at a pretty good team. And missed opportunity, yes, yesterday, for sure. Lawrence, do you agree with that? Have we seen Leicester's swoon? I think the swoon is down to things that maybe aren't about the swoon. I think a lot of people have found out, uh, or at least thought about Jamie Vardy and how he plays his game. If you play a fairly deep line, it's difficult for him to get behind that. Uh, you know, they close down Mares, don't let him get into certain positions. Although he then has moments of bursts of brilliance, like the overhead kick that he had in this game, which, I mean, had yeah. that gone in, that really would have been fantastic. I mean, these these two really, players aren't really missing, like, lacking opportunities. Vardy, over the last couple of games, has missed great opportunities. He hit the crossbar in the post this weekend, I believe. He put that open shot over the bar uh, midweek against um, Manchester City. Uh, it seems like he's still generating the opportunities. And then Mara's had his spot kick this week. It's just that their actual ability to, to convert on that opportunities is, to use a cliche, re- regressing to their mean. Yeah, in a way. I mean, uh, they've hit the 40 points now, so that, uh, you know, they've said they'll get the champagne out. That's fantastic. It uh, means they're going to stay. I mean, with 40 points, they will stay up this season. Um, so, so there's a good side there. I still think you've got to look at uh, maybe chances created, how they create those chances. Uh, and I, I still think they look susceptible to a counter mm. uh, against, against Bournemouth. And I, I, it's not as if Bournemouth didn't create chances in this game. Um, yeah. And I. Uh, <laughs> Basically, at the beginning of the season, you know, if we'd have said, you know, uh, Leicester will get 40 points this season and they'll stay up, they would have been happy with that. Uh, I just think for that reason, we can't expect too much more. Bournemouth is beginning to play well defensively. We actually saw some good defensive play against Arsenal also. They obviously shut down Manchester United. They shut down Chelsea uh, a few weeks ago. Now imagine what happens if Turbe is going to come in on loan from Roma. That's a massive signing for Bournemouth uh, for the rest of the season. Uh, potentially a massive signing if, if if he plays up to his capabilities. Callum Wilson at some point will be back. Max Gradle at some point will be back. Uh, I think, and you and as you mentioned yesterday, Lawrence, there were several counter op- uh, attacking opportunities. Bournemouth should have had a goal uh, before Vardy missed that first chance. They should yeah. have had one or two goals by that time. So. I, I'm thinking Eddie Howe has got this Cherries team where even though the table isn't isn't uh, pretty viewing for uh, Bournemouth supporters right now and there's still nervousness about can we get to 36, 37 points and stay up, I, I, I like what I'm seeing. I think that their performances are getting better and better. They're getting stronger. Uh, they've now got um, uh, players coming in, players getting fit again. Elchek is going to be fit soon, or I think he might be back already. Uh, so... I, I really think that they're well positioned. This is an important point for them and an important psychological point. Yeah, that that's going to be a big addition too because it'll allow Simon Francis to move back out to the right back position and reform that tandem with Matt Ritchie. And you mentioned it, if, if King converts that early chance at the King Power Stadium, I'm not sure, I'm not sure we're talking about a draw in this one. Leicester in this game, they had the better, they had the advantage in shots throughout. 16 to 9 is how it ended. Bournemouth was held without a shot on target the whole match, but Leicester only had two shots on target through the match. Uh, one of the rare, rare games where Leicester was given the ball, had 56% possession, asked to break another team down, and they couldn't do it. And you wonder if over the second half of the year, they're going to be in that situation more, whereas through the first half, they were allowed to play on the counter almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. Well, gentlemen, those were the t- results for the two teams that started the weekend at the top of the Premier League table. But there were eight other matches over the last 30 hours, and they started on Saturday with West Ham outworking Liverpool throughout their 90 minutes at Upton Park, claiming a 2-0 victory that leaves the Hammers unbeaten in seven. 
Sunderland needing a win over cellar-dwelling Aston Villa got two late goals from Jermaine Defoe in a 3-1 victory at the Stadium of Light. Norwich City scored two minutes after Vincent Wanyama was shown a second yellow card and handed Southampton a 1-0 loss. West Brom also took advantage of a red card, dealing Stoke City a 2-1 loss at the Hawthorns after Jeff Cameron's dismissal. Manchester United, with another solid performance, beat Swansea at Old Trafford 2-1, and Manchester City, with late goals from Yaya Toure and Sergio Aguero, beat Watford 2-1 at Vicarage Road. On Sunday, Chelsea put in their best performance of the season and avenged Crystal Palace's victory at Stamford Bridge, defeating the Eagles 3-0. And Tottenham lost ground in the title race after one of the weekend's most entertaining games ended 1-1 at Everton. Those results leave Aston Villa still with only one win through 20 rounds, 11 points from safety with 8. Sunderland is much closer to survival with 15 points, with Newcastle lingering in the drop with 17. Swansea, two points above the Magpies, are the only club within a game's reach of relegation. At the top of the table, it's Arsenal on 42 points, two clear of Leicester City, with Manchester City another point back, and Spurs in fourth, six points off the pace. When we come back, we'll talk about Tottenham's visit to Everton, as well as the rest of the results at the top of the table. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back, everybody. Arguably the most entertaining match of the weekend was the last one of the weekend. Tottenham Hotspur riding a three-match winning streak, visiting Goodison Park, where an Everton team that's mired in the middle of the table is starting to draw criticism from the fan base. Final score on this one, 1-1. Lawrence, I'll go ahead and start with you on this one. I suppose in the middle of the week, we would have predicted that this would have been the result or something close to it. And in that respect, should either of these teams be really disappointed at not getting full points? I don't think so, no. Uh, you know, Everton, uh, uh, also considering how open this game was, especially in the midfield. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, in the midfield for Spurs, very centrally, and then wider uh, for the likes of Everton, who managed to get a lot of joy from getting balls in, in, out wide to Lukaku, which he was supposed to hold up. Um, and ultimately, he didn't end up doing so much. But then as the game become, became more and more fraught and more and more open, I think both teams kind of benefited from that. I guess the problem with that is it didn't give us very much to cling on to because either side, uh, you know, you could say create enough chances to actually win the game. And when you look at the shots, how many shots is it? How many shots did Everton have compared? 12 to- shots to 19 for Tottenham. 12 to 19, yeah. So it, yeah, I, I know that looks like a, a fairly big disparity, but still getting 12 shots away in a game is still the achievement there. Possession wise, they were pretty well matched. Um, you know, I, I, I actually think that when we look at, uh, we look back for, Tottenham this season we're actually going to say you know what this was a good away result and the same for Everton Hmm. at the beginning of the season I think both teams would have taken that and maybe it's the same case now Kartik that both teams would have taken and it's just that there is something about this Spurs team especially over the last three uh, matches because they have produced those three wins after losing at home to Newcastle that you want some kind of indication of what they actually are a draw still leaves that in the the realm where you could go either way on them. You can apply multiple narratives to them. But if they had gotten a win at Everton against a team that is similarly talented, although not producing the same results, that would have been a pretty clear indication that they are, in fact, surging. Yeah, had they won this game, I think it would have been pretty clear that they're in the title race. Uh, not many teams are going to go to Everton and get full points. Uh, Martinez is very good at, ser- at getting draws. It's, I think we've talked about time and again. Uh, but... To win at Goodison would have been a real statement of intent. They didn't win. Uh, they did, however, after they had dominated the game and then shipped that goal to a former player of theirs, longtime former player of theirs, Aaron Lennon. Uh, they, they, their heads didn't drop. Uh, this is this is a sign of the new Spurs with with these younger players, with this young core, and with a positive manager in Pochettino that uh, their heads didn't drop. They just kept plugging away, and they got the goal. They comprehensively ran Everton off the pitch in the first half. Second half, I thought Everton were the better team, maybe slightly. I think it was a good game, open game. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, it's a good point, but it's not the three points that would have really sent, uh, I think, shockwaves through the Premier League and, and, and might have been uh, the game we look back on at the end of the season of Spurs. Even if they don't win the title, they finish second or third and they really push uh, Arsenal and United, uh, the, the other teams that are pushing for this title, um, hard. It would have been the game we looked at and said, oh, my goodness, that's when they they really – put their foot down in this this title race um they didn't do that so 
that's unfortunate, but it's it's a point. And uh, the other side is Everton again has dropped more points at home, and and that's uh, that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, let's let's t- touch on that in a little bit because Kartik, I want to ask you straight out the something that Lawrence and I debated on the midweek show. Do you right now consider Spurs a title contender in this league? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the big question for me about Spurs are they have so many young players, so many young English players, and we know young English players tend to hit a wall at a certain point in the season in, in their in their early in their uh, careers. Uh, none of them have ever played a full Premier League season before. Harry Kane wasn't into into that Spurs team until November of last season, so. Are they going to hit an artificial wall at some point? Or did Kane actually hit that wall in the first two months of this season and came out of it? Uh, and Deli Ali, is he, is he going to keep going at this rate? Eric Dyer. And if they do, uh, I don't see any reason why they can't push for the title. Hmm. Uh, Deli Ali has scored or assisted six goals in his last seven Premier League appearances. Wow. Guy was in League One last season at this time. Think about that. Hmm. And Liverpool could have gone for five million. Lawrence, let me ask you about Everton, and I want to get Kartik's thoughts on this too. There seems to be, again, a growing discontentment within the Everton fan base. It seems like six months they figure out some something to be mad with at Everton. Not that I don't empathize with that, but it, it shifts from the board to, to Martinez back and forth, and it's with Martinez again. Do you think Roberto Martinez is doing a good job with Everton? Uh, relatively, or... Uh, I do think... There are elements of a good job there. You've got to look at the football. You've got to look at the confidence of the play today. Uh, some people say it's silly the way that the Stones play at the back. Some people say it shows the confidence of a player. Uh, that The adaptability and flexibility of uh, certain elements of that formation is actually really nice. Um, I mean, you know, for instance, the way that Stones got forward and blasted the ball at the, at the end of the game. So, uh, you know, I think... But then you would say, would he need to do that if they were a more aggressive side? You know, we spoke about, you know, his character being transposed onto the side in some way. And I think he was talking about them being more ruthless and more brutal in a way. And, you know, today that showed essentially they played into each other's hands by not taking uh, the initiative in the game. And in in the end, it looked as if both sides almost sort of ran out of tactical ideas to be able to break the other down because they both looked so, uh, I don't want to say solid defensively. But they both sort of knew how to neutralize the other team. And so for that reason, they weren't solid. They were just sort of, they're almost like jelly, if you like. They're a mass, but they don't quite. Yeah, sort of Martinez. Martinez did something he doesn't often do because, uh, as I said, the first half, Everton got the one chance and scored, but Spurs were all over them. It could have been up four or five to one. He brought Bestich on, which is not something he typically does. And that did give him a solidity defensively. Obviously, Bestich playing in front of the back four, but still the kind of. Uh, kind of solid uh, organization defensively that we don't often see from Everton or we haven't this season. So that was a positive sign, I think. Hmm. Everton haven't won in their last six matches, uh, I think at least in the Premier League, yeah, against right. Tottenham. So this is a decent, again... Seven and, and now. It's, it's seven now. Yeah, that'd be, yeah, that'd be seven, yeah. Uh, you know, so it's, it's you said it's maybe a disappointing result more for Spurs at this point because of their ambitions this season. You, we asked the question before we came into this part of the podcast... What would Moyes be doing with this team? And I think he'd be playing a four-one-four-one, and we'd probably see him in a slightly higher position than this. But do you want effective football, or do you want a football where you're playing really beautifully and you get, you know, that out of your season? Because but, essentially, I don't think that Everton expected to be in the top four when they started this season. So what's there to be disappointed? Well, but but they didn't sell stones, right? So they oh. held on to stones. So that indicated some degree of ambition. And no, it, we it, saw it, yeah, quickly, yeah. but we oh. saw quickly this season that Chelsea weren't going to be in the top four, and that Manchester United had problems. And we saw quickly soon after that Manchester City have all kinds of problems. So um, I, I don't think that that's fair. I think I have said I've gone on the record. I know a lot of people follow me on Twitter that David Moyes would have this team in the top four, and I think he might have them pushing for the title. Maybe I overdid it with pushing for the title. But if he had this set of players, I think they'd be put, they would be fifth or sixth at worst at this point, maybe in the top four, certainly pushing for the to- a top four spot. At this point, Everton making the top four this season is out of the realm of possibilities. Chances are they won't even make Europe. So uh, either they're playing the nicely, they're scoring a lot of goals. Lukaku's, Lukaku and Delafeu are both in great moments in their careers, and they're young players. But there's... Um, there's clearly something not right with the management of Roberto Martinez, uh, it, whether it's tactical management or man management. Uh, they, they draw too many matches. They drop too many points at home. 
And these are things that off, didn't often happen under Moyes. Now, granted, we had this huge sample size from Moyes. He stayed at the club for 11 years, which doesn't happen in English football anymore. But uh, I, I just seem to think they would be in, be in a better place if he were the manager. There's this junction between what goes on off the pitch and on the pitch, though. I mean, we're still talking about this takeover for them. You imagine that, that sort of investment within the club would certainly push them a little bit further forward. Uh, the same goes on for Spurs. I mean, it would be great if Spurs could be moving into their new stadium at this point. But again, people seem to be sort of waiting for that so they can compete with everyone else and talking. They're talking about that coming. Both teams to be, seem to be sort of waiting right now uh, for something to happen. And actually, this was a great season, like Kartik says, for both of them to take it by the scruff of the neck if we want to uh, personify the league in some way. So I, I, I see what I see where everyone's coming from on this one, but I also think that I see why both teams are in the position they are. Shall right, but I, th I think very quickly, uh, even before the transfer windows close this, uh, on August 31st or September 1st, whenever it closed, clubs like Spurs and Everton, because they're, they're always those next two clubs we talk about, right, outside of the, the big, big clubs that are always competing in Europe or competing for European spots. It was obvious Chelsea had something wrong with them and they might fall out of the top four. Now, for sure, they're out of the top four. And it was a matter of an opportunity. And the opportunity cost, I think, for Everton is, is far greater uh, now because they didn't take this opportunity where Spurs are taking this opportunity, whether they finish in the top four or not. They are, they are pushing in a way that uh, they may not have uh, if, if, they didn't, uh, if they didn't have the manager they had. Gentlemen, let's move on to another very exciting game, a 2-1 result for Manchester City at Vicarage Road. For Watford, two home results in a row that are really disappointing. Two well-played games, two 2-1 losses, the previous one to Spurs on that late Sun Hyun Min goal, a controversial Sun Hyun Min goal. Lawrence, it's got to be tough to take for a Watford team that a couple of weeks ago were pushing towards the top four. Now, after a couple of losses, they're drifting back towards the middle of the pack. I don't think it's such a problem to be drifting back towards the middle of the pack right now for Watford. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the season, their goal would have been stay up and get in that middle pack in the table, uh, make sure they stay up and get, basically get as high up the table as they can. But again, they have to sort of accept that if with the, the long term that had gone maybe the five or six years before this, to be in this position now is a, is a fantastic one. And I think you said on, yourself on the podcast, if if this manager was in another position, Flores was in another position, we would be talking about him as almost the second coming of Mourinho. But because of the situation at Watford and what they've crafted after the last few years, this could be seen as a transitional season. And as long as they stay up during that, then you know that's fantastic for them. The good thing for them is they can play pragmatic football with the personnel that they have, um, and it seems to be fitting together. I don't know how much. I don't know whether that can last over a number of seasons, though. So again, we're going to see a transitional summer and, and more changes at the club. Mm. Kartik, I want to ask you about Manchester City's defense because it was such, it was the biggest topic on this podcast while you were gone. And while uh, this weekend it actually performed very well, the only goal Watford had was an own goal. Uh, Alexander Kolarov's clearance on a corner kick going very badly early in the second half. The one thing that stood out to me is that Nicholas Otamendi, who I consider a very good defender, seems to be a terrible defender one-on-one -on -one in open space. Uh, we've seen it throughout the time he's been at City, but this weekend there were two very good examples. In the first half, getting turned by Odin Agalu, chance that was created there. In the second half, Etienne Capu on a run through midfield ended up nutmegging uh, Otamendi and creating a shot there. Is this just a phase that we're seeing from Otamendi, or is this a problem? And if this is going to be a consistent problem, it really does making make getting somebody as athletic as Vincent Company back in the lineup even more necessary. Well, it's it's a continuing problem. It's a continuing theme. Uh, quite frankly, Joe Hart bailed out Manchester City in this game, and um, I, I was remarking to someone this morning: Watford is the one team I've seen in the Premier League that has never been has not been outplayed once this season. Mm. And I've seen all 20 teams play several times. Watford, even the 3-0 loss to Arsenal, they weren't outplayed in that match. Uh, they Even their 2-0 loss to City earlier in the season, they weren't outplayed in that match. So Only for 19 they, minutes against Arsenal. Well, yeah, right. I mean, but they Capu, who you mentioned, was the best player on, on the pitch for 45 minutes in that game, or 60 minutes. I mean, right. bossing the midfield. So I've watched a lot of Watford, and this is the kind of performance I expected from them. They were the better team. They were the better team against Spurs until Ake got sent off. Uh, a red card that I was surprised wasn't rescinded. I was disappointed to see that uh, he, his three-game ban stood. Uh, I obviously wasn't on the pot after that Spurs-Watford uh, game. But uh, Kiki Sanchez-Flores has Watford playing some really good pragmatic football. They defend well, they're well-organized, and they go forward you know, with, with some gusto. They're not just a counterattacking team. Um, defensively, I think you, you make a good point about Otamendi one-on-one. -on -one. Mangala's... Uh, 
better, <laughs> but Mangala is uh, is not a better one-on-one defender than Otamendi, and his his distribution, his uh, his clearances are really poor. Oh, I love him so to, much. Yeah, you have to wonder uh, why Stefan Savage was let go by the same city brass. Why uh, Nastasic was let go, but yet Mangala, there's enough faith to keep him around and, and keep him in the team. Uh, Dee Michaelis is 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 getting up there, but I I have to say at 35. I still think Dee Michaelis is probably a better option than, than Mangala, honestly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are a lot of question marks. I don't know about uh, now it's another month without company. If City can kind of sustain this, uh, this, this title challenge while, uh, all the, while company is injured. The flip side of it is uh, we talk about Arsenal ha- having a proven track record of not performing. When they, when they need to get results. The flip side is true with Manchester City. They were completely outplayed in this match. And then the two guys who got goals were the two guys who always get goals in big games, are Torre and, and Aguero. And both those players, then you, th- you throw in David Silva, who's not playing well this season, but you throw in that third player. Those three guys have a history uh, of doing remarkable things when their backs are against the wall and the chips are down, getting City results and winning league titles. So... Mm. Um, on the surface of play, I don't think Manchester City are a top four side, but you just, they're the only team that has proven league, uh, uh proven match winners in games that decide league titles, uh, that are, that are in this, in this discussion for, for, for the title. Uh, United has one in Rooney. That's it. And, but City has the three guys I just mentioned and two of them after playing horribly, both those guys were terrible yesterday. Uh, scored remarkable goals to win the game. Speaking of Wayne Rooney, a, a remarkable goal of his own in the 77th minute at Old Trafford, delivering a 2-1 victory for Manchester United over Swansea. I think most people who watch this game would say it's a deserved victory for the second match in a row. Manchester United actually so, showed a lot of initiative, a lot of desire going forward. Their play in the final third seemingly revitalized ever since the uh, seat that Louis Van Hall is sitting on really heated up. So let me ask both of you this, Lawrence. First, are you convinced that Manchester United has turned a corner, or do you do you need to see more than two games worth of ambition? I think you need to see more than two games worth uh, because I, I I don't think they were so much better in in the last match before this. I mean, against City they were good. Um, uh, sorry, against Chelsea, Chelsea they were good, and then against Swansea City they were improved. So I'd say there's two matches of improvement there. Uh, the next one, the next game having is against Sheffield United. I'll be interested to see whether he plays a strong side for that or looks to rotate some more. And then they're actually away to Newcastle United, which will be an interesting one because, um, you know, if, if you look at the results, uh, the results that, uh, Steve's been getting against big sides recently, then, you know, could, could we see an upset there? I, I'm just, what I'm saying about Manchester United is I think the formation, uh, it basically takes the other side almost fitting into that. For it to work, and I think Swansea, you know, we're, we're comparing this win with Swansea as if it's some sort of uh, great thing. It is yes. definitely a release of pressure, but this is against a side who had lost a number of games in a row, drawn two and won one mm-hmm. in the last three before this. So it's not like they're out playing a team who have been playing incredible football. Though we have, they have seen their own upturn since uh, since the second. And you could say the same thing about Chelsea. Between Chelsea and Swansea, before Chelsea got a three 0 victory this weekend. Uh, you would say that those are two of the bottom five or six teams in the league, Kartik, though Manchester United's talent and the track history of that talent kind of indicates that they could turn a corner at any time, which complicates the question, do you think Manchester United have turned a corner? I don't think they have turned a corner, uh, but they've stopped the bleeding. And in this Premier League season, stopping the bleeding is probably good enough. Uh, Manchester City has been bleeding terminally for four months and it's still only three points back uh, <laughs> of, the, of the top. Uh, Manchester United is only, what, nine points back? And we've talked about managers getting sacked, players being shipped out in January, uh, club in crisis, all of this this, this talk. So I think we, we're, we're making judgments about United, City, and uh, Liverpool and, and, and the other big clubs based on previous Premier League seasons, and I guess this has been a constant theme of this show. At this point, they've stopped the bleeding. It'll be interesting to see what happens next, because that Newcastle match is a match. Newcastle has had a good record against Manchester United the last several seasons, and that is the type of game I can see United having played the way they have this season. Hmm. It'll It'll be important for them to get three points there. Then they go to Anfield, where 
the 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 atmosphere will be great, but the way Liverpool is playing, they they should get United should get three points. But yeah. the the Newcastle game might be trickier. Uh, so Lawrence makes a great point. We won't know until that game whether they've actually turned the corner. You mentioned Liverpool, Liverpool at Upton Park this weekend. Aesthetically, probably their worst performance under Jurgen Klopp. Two nil loss to Slavin Bilic's side. When Jurgen Klopp was hired, guys, there was a lot of speculation that his pressing. The energy that he requires from his players was going to take its toll in England. Kartik, are we starting to see that? Yeah, especially over this holiday period. And and I think Klopp was prophetic. He was talking about his own team when he said, "Gosh, this is crazy. We, we uh, that we play through like this, and this is why England had struggles in, in major tournaments because in Germany, obviously, they have they have a four to five week break every every season, and the teams come back refreshed. We saw it with this Dortmund team last season. They were uh, in the relegation zone." At the uh, at the break, and then they were able to, to push up and, and still qualify for Europe uh, by winning the German Cup and, and finishing in, in the top half of the table. There is a um, it, there is in Germany an ability to play a frantic style and and press and, and maybe not rotate your squad as much as, as as you would need to. You would think you would need to playing that style because you have that break. In England, you don't have that luxury. In fact, the, the period of time when you should be breaking, you're playing twice as many matches. Twice as many league matches, at least. And I think it has taken its toll. I, I see tired guys. I see guys giving up on runs. Uh, I, I don't I, I don't want to say the effort isn't there because I think it's there mentally. I just think physically the, the team is kind of spent. And we've seen some injuries. Even though Benteke has scored two goals in the, in the last few games, uh, Origi is a better fit for the way Klopp wants to play. And we saw... Uh, without Origi and the team, and Danny Ings injured for the season, you don't have a striker pressing up top, and you're giving the other team too much space to play. And 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 then once uh, West Ham were getting into advanced positions, they were doing some some nice things, and they've got uh, they've gotten over their little bit of injury bug. So I, I don't know. I mean, this is the question: Does um, Klopp write it out with this season? Is there a a point in the season where? Uh, the energy levels will be will, will be replenished, and guys will be able to press and play and do the kind of running Klopp expects uh, with this particular team. Or is this going to be the norm for Liverpool for the rest of the season? Uh, which is fine because I think it's a mulligan this season for Klopp anyway. And then ten guys are gone this summer, twelve guys are gone mm-hmm. this summer, and he gets guys that can play this way and can play this way for a sustained period of time. That's really the big question for me. Yeah, Lawrence, I think it's a mixture of. Maybe for me, a lot of people, uh, you know, the Redman TV on YouTube has spoken about how this is essentially a really long preseason for Jurgen Klopp. Um, you know, at the end of his, there's also people drawing attention to the end of his first season with Dortmund where he got rid of, I think it was either 17 or 19 players, their top scorer in the previous season, all those sorts of things. Uh, I think he's using this time to assess uh, how well uh, the players will perform in his system and, and under his kind of mentality. He spoke about how they were not performing 100%, but how they were performing 95% in this match. He spoke about uh, basically the, the closing down, which he called not pressing, uh, which is, is certainly um, an indicator of what he wants from the players. They don't have to run the whole time. They have to close down and press in the right way. And he was saying they weren't doing that. And I think what he's almost saying is it's not just about the running it's not just about the mentality it's about a mixture of the two and that makes the 100 percent for him um and then not only that you know i think he said they should be angry in this one instead of uh you know disappointed and so i think he's making the right sort of sounds for the liverpool uh faithful right now i still think that there's more to this team and i think he should be getting more out of this side uh and you know uh, i think uh, Nipun's spoken in this podcast about tactical naivety. I think that again played out in this match. Um, but then Liverpool are being linked with certain players, you know, people like Teshtegan, um, solid players such as Subotic coming over with him to enforce that sort of mentality. Um, and they are uh, competing on a, a lot of levels with, um, with, with injuries. So, you know, there's a lot of concurrent narratives with Liverpool, which make it hard to, uh, and that analyze overall, but it does feel a little bit underwhelming right now as somebody who follows Liverpool really closely. You know, they're, they're not performing to the full of their, the most of their ability. And they should have got a better result against West Ham because they dominated the possession. They dominated and, and had enough chances to be able to finish off the game. And I think that's why Klopp was angry. Hmm. 
West Ham with their second victory in a row after five straight draws. They leapfrog Liverpool in the table. Let's go ahead and take our second break. When we come back, we'll update you on a Spanish league that's back in action. We'll talk about our players of the week, and then we'll talk about Chelsea's rebound at Selhurst, their 3-0 victory over Crystal Palace. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Welcome back. Let's talk about Spain, the first of Europe's big leagues to join England back on the field after their winter break. La Liga has played its 17th round midweek, all with all of Barcelona, Atletico, and Real Madrid winning. But it was this 20th round this weekend that really shook up the table. Atletico Madrid, they came into the round even with Barcelona at the top, albeit with one more game played. And against Levante, Diego Simeone's team kept their 11th clean sheet of the season in a 1-0 win. Atleti have now only allowed Eight goals in 18 rounds. As for Barcelona, well, their Catalan derby on Sunday at Espanyol ended scoreless, dropping them into second place and handing them a rare shutout. They were also shut out earlier this year in the first leg of the Spanish Supercopa against Atletic Bilbao, and they played a scoreless first leg in the Copa del Rey against Villanovense. But this was the first time in 17 league games that somebody had kept Luis Enrique's side off the scoreboard. So Atletico Madrid pulls two points clear of Barcelona and also gave Real Madrid a chance to pull even with Barcelona. They played the weekend's last match at the Mestalla against Valencia. Unfortunately for Real Madrid, more points dropped, a 2-2 result here. Gary Neville is still winless in La Liga, and Valencia is still 10th in the table. But it was a good point for Los Che, and another reason for the tabloids to go after Rafa Benitez in Madrid. We'll have our top fours next segment, but given it's the beginning of a new year, I wanted to ask Kartik and Lawrence about their... Well, they're more global view of things. They're top teams in the world. The teams you see as the best, the strongest, however you see it going into the new year, I wanted to do a kind of a top five list of our best teams in the world. And I'll go ahead and start. Uh, one team that I really remiss not mentioning in the top five is Paris Saint-Germain. It's just really difficult to get a grasp on them given the level of competition that they face week in and week out. We did get a little bit of a grasp of where they are relative to Real Madrid, but we do see how Real Madrid is struggling, which is part of the reason I have them outside of my top five. Number five, I have Borussia Dortmund. Maybe a little bit surprising for some people because they're not in Champions League, and so some people probably not seeing them as much as they could, uh, but they have been a very good team this year. Real Real Madrid, number four for me, behind Atletico Madrid, Bayern Munich, number two, and number one, I don't think it's much of a debate. As good as Bayern Munich is, Barcelona deserves this spot until proven otherwise. Kartik, to what extent do you uh, agree with my top five? I'm swapping Bayern and Barcelona. I think uh, uh, Bayern's uh, recent uh, uh, struggles in, in the Bundesliga have been down to having a disproportionate number of injuries. Barca have drawn too many matches for me uh, in, in the last uh, last month in La Liga. So I'm dropping them to second. I'm going at Levy third, fourth, let's say Dortmund. No, fourth, let's say Real Madrid, fifth Dortmund. So I guess we have the same top five, just different order. Yeah, Lawrence, you're the tiebreaker here. Who uh, who do you see as being number one between Bayern and Barcelona? Probably, probably Barcelona. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still think you haven't mentioned Juventus in there. Have not. I, I, haven't didn't, I didn't even Man think City about it, to be there. honest with you. Same thing with Man City. I didn't even think about it. What about Inter? Chelsea in there? I mean, Inter is slightly more diverse. Group I of definitely have not mentioned Chelsea. Uh, I mean, but you, yeah, I mean, if you mention Chelsea, is still in the Champions League. Yeah, you know, but I mean, they're probably not one of the top five in Champions League, let alone the world. Why are you putting Chelsea any lower than PSG? I because Chelsea has been a bad team this year. Chelsea is getting outscored by their opposition this year. So, but not not on not on, not after their management change. And based on this weekend's uh, evidence, you'd probably is, say that they deserve. Are you trying to wind me up? Is this serious? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, never say wind me up. Come on, <laughs> uh, I, I'm I'm being serious. I think based on what we've seen this weekend from Chelsea, I think that they are they're 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 as good a side as PSG. They might not even be one of the top five teams in London. Let alone um, like, England, let Brent, alone the world. Brent probably would say that, yeah, but I, you know. Well, if you want to count, actually, at, de- at best, they're fifth in London right now. Yeah, it depends honest. on where you want to count Watford. If Watford's a London side, they're sixth. So, like I said, they they might not be the in the top five in London, let alone the world. I think they are, and I think we'll see. I think we'll see that come the end of the Champions League and those sort of things. 
I, just, I mean, just squad-wise, I mean, look at look at the, the attack in their midfield right now. I mean, Willian, Oscar, two fantastic players there. You, you, know what, you know what? The underground goes to Watford, so we're going to count Watford as part of London. Chelsea's not in the top five in London. <laughs> the underground just about stretches there. But, I, you know, even, even then, I think, you know, we're, we're, you, you can so much Chelsea. Still taking away from the fact that I mentioned Juventus and Man City in that list as well. Um, you know, I think Juventus probably deserve to be in that list, don't you? Considering no, I do not. no, not considering the way now they played better in Serie A the last couple of months, but they're they're still not a sure bet to to make Champions League next year at this point. I mean, the league, yeah. the top of uh, Fiorentina is not going away. I mean, and uh, Inter, I think is they've got some issues, but they they're going to stick stick up there. Uh, Juve may not be in that top three. I mean, considering Paris Saint Germain wasn't in either Kartik or Mai's top five. I think it's a real reach to say that Chelsea or Juventus are even on the same level as PSG, let alone the people that we are ranking above them. Yeah, but I, I mean, I think they are level with PSG just based on the quality of the leagues. Why are you disrespecting Bayer Leverkusen here? It's a great point, Richard. Why Chicharito is one of the best strikers or in the Mucha, world. Mucha Gladbach has uh, really come on. They, they could be in the conversation. And, and Hertha Berlin is sitting third in the Bundesliga right now, a team that uh, nobody thought about before the season. And in fact, Rafa Honingstein has compared John Anthony Brooks, the, the American international, to Jerome Boateng. So that's something to get our American listeners excited. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, gentlemen, let's move on from this conversation. Let's go to our uh, weekly players of the week. I'll go ahead and go first here. Nobody excited me this much this week as, as Anthony Martial did. He had a goal, an assist, was a constant threat coming in from the left. Uh, against Swansea, maybe some of that is on Swansea, but I thought Anthony Martial really embodied the change in attitude that Manchester United has wanted to see, or Louis van Gaal has wanted to see from his players. And maybe it wasn't so conscious as flicking a switch, but this weekend he did look like a dominant player, whereas Manchester United has had very few dominant players this season. Lawrence, your player of the week. Uh, can I say Oscar for Chelsea? I think he was, uh, looks as if the chains have been taken off in some ways. Another player seemed that's very, flicked a switch. Yeah, it seemed very free in that midfield to be able to move forward. Uh, complemented a lot of the other players quite well. Uh, had some pretty neat moves. Uh, certainly, you know, in, that, in the kind of the line where you draw for the final third, I think he pretty much ran that for the entire match. Although you would say the reason he did that was because, uh, Crystal Palace looked light in the midfield. And you could say the same about the other guy I would nominate for player of the weekend, which is either going to be uh, the and any of the three for West Ham. Basically, we're looking at Antonio Lanzini or Valencia. You know, any of those guys in a similar position, I think this weekend would equally as good and run it just as much, if not more than Oscar. Hmm. Uh, Kartik, your player of the week. Yeah, I, I thought about Oscar and I thought about uh, Diego Costa. I, I think they both have Costa's mm-hmm. really come good. Not surprisingly. Coincidentally. Yeah, I I think we can discuss this more when we get to the Chelsea game. And uh, those folks who still believe that Mourinho got a raw deal, they, I don't know what what they've been watching for the last six months. But uh, I'm going with Jermaine Defoe because I I think that was the type of game it felt like Sunderland were going to draw. Villa were in the game, and that could have relegated both teams, essentially. Uh, I can't believe we're talking about a game the first weekend of January relegating teams, but that's how uh, close it was to, uh, well, Villa has been cut adrift and how dangerously close it was to Sunderland getting cut adrift. And Jermaine Defoe is a guy who just has kept scoring goals in his career in English football, and uh, he's doing it now for a manager other than Harry Redknapp, so that's pretty impressive, right? And um, those were critical goals at, at a time when I think uh, Big Sam is talking very openly about bringing in as many new players to Sunderland as he can because he's inherited a team that were built by other managers and just uh, don't fit him. I think he likes Jan and Villa, who he's got on loan uh, from Russia, and I think that's about it. I don't think he likes anyone else in the team he inherited. So uh, there, there are essentially 10 spots up for uh, – or, or maybe he's uh, okay with their goalkeepers, with Minone or, or Pantamillion, Pantamillion. Uh, he, he's, I think, very – the other nine positions on the field are all open, and Defoe – really need to have this kind of performance uh, to reinforce that he still has something in the tank. And, and he did that and they got three points. Mm. Uh, some, he did score some really easy goals though. I mean, the third goal was ridiculous mm. <laughs> that they, that Villa conceded. Yeah. It seemed like Villa at some point just kind of said, that's it for us. And then 
went from a 1-1 game to a pretty clear result for Sunderland. Um, pretty indicative of Villa. We'll talk about that in a second. Let's get to some feedback. We're going to have to, uh, apologies to a couple of people. We're going to have to cut feedback short a little bit because we're running a bit long, but I'll go ahead and take the first one that we got from a uh, human Twitter user, Sunny SoCal Rob 25. Uh, how will the league FA Cup schedule affect teams still in before going back to the Premier League? League Cup semifinals are in the middle of the week. FA Cup this coming weekend. Kartik, this is the annual fatigue question as to whether teams can handle this and whether teams are going to take these competitions seriously. Yeah, I, I think, uh, Rob, the reality is most Premier League teams are, are not going to field a, a full first squad in the in the FA Cup. I think very few will, quite, quite honestly. And we're seeing this as, as time goes on. Each year, more and more Premier League teams are blowing off that third round of the FA Cup. If they get through, they get through. If they don't, oh well. And we see the top championship teams, the teams chasing promotion in the championship doing the same thing. So I, I think you're going to see a lot of squad rotation, and especially from uh, the team, the four teams, Liverpool, Everton, Man City, and Stoke that are still alive in the uh, in, in, in the League Cup. You might see some excessive rotation from, both, from those four teams. Well, one thing that's going to happen next week, because we won't have league games, is we won't have a Premier League review show. Lawrence, what are you going to do with your weekend off? Are you going to steadfastly watch all those FA Cup ties? Yeah, absolutely, Richard. I mean, I'm going to be sitting on Friday night when Liverpool travel to Exeter, uh, you know, to, to fascinate us playing at 7.55 in the evening. <laughs> uh, a, way, a lot of people are talking about the, the crazy schedule and the reason that people have to cram so many things in. Uh, Klopp surely won't be happy about that. There's a lot of matches to cram in. You know, it's not just, uh, it's not just the FA Cup, it's also the Carling Cup. It's also... The Europa League at this point, and then Liverpool come the end of February have a really ridiculous run of Augsburg, uh, think then Everton, and then Man City. So that there is, there are a lot of games crammed in here. That again, we Britain almost seems to be beating themselves up over it. Just doesn't make very much sense. Um, I, I just don't think that the, the the TV schedule is right, and there seem to be as much money as these teams are paying. I just don't think that it justifies what's going on overall in the league and the actual fans that go to the games end up suffering. I think, Mm -hmm. I I think there's a good piece in it on um, either on the guardian or the telegraph. I can't remember which, sorry. Um, But they, they basically talk about how fans are losing out because the, the TV guys are basically dictating when the matches are. Mm, Sounds like a David Kahn column. Uh, Gentlemen, we have four (laughs) more games to get to this week. Uh, Let's get to them quickly. Then we'll start looking forward to the next week worth of action. Chelsea, Crystal Palace, Chelsea, three nil victory at Selhurst Park. Kartik seems like a symptom of their managerial change. Certainly. Again, I'm not sure we want to be in the position of seemingly condoning players for for not giving full effort as professionals because they are professional players. They're well-compensated professional players, particularly on Chelsea. But uh, things had run its course with Mourinho. And the fact that the club did not make the, the sacking, make the change after the Southampton loss or the Liverpool loss – I think really is what has completely uh, destroyed this campaign for them. Because had they made this managerial change, and I'm not a fan of Goose Heating. I think a lot of people who, who follow me know that, that I didn't like the job he did with Russia. I didn't think he did a particularly good job with Turkey. And obviously the Netherlands disaster and qualifying speaks for itself. But that I think you could have put anyone in there that is kind of a player's manager and has some tactical sense and some a willingness to, to, to give Oscar and, and Willian and these, these, these great players on the ball some creative freedom, that there would have been a, a quick turnaround, a quick change in, 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 in the feeling around the club. Uh, but the decision to persist with Mourinho as he continued to scapegoat physios and players and media and, and referees and, and, and everything uh, just made it that much worse to the point where players did perhaps unprofessionally check out on, on the manager and not give their full effort, but you have to look at it as a short-term uh, setback uh, by players for a long-term game for the club that they're, that they're fighting for, and, and the supporters of Chelsea need to understand that. This was this this long-term puts Chelsea in a better place, and this was a good result today. And Oscar, as uh, Lawrence mentioned, was particularly good, and I thought Costa was good. I felt like Mikel was out- excellent. That's a, a player who's been recalled from the wilderness. Uh, he think obviously... He was a core player of the first go-around for Heating at Chelsea, so uh, he's brought him back from uh, from the depths of uh, from wherever he was, and, and he's given a, given quite a performance. Mm. I felt like he had the least strong uh, game today, actually, of, of all of his Chelsea 
appearances though because uh you know it, it, we saw a lot more Ivanovic called into action and then Matic came on at the end of the game um but I'd also question the timeline that would I wonder what the next how the next team will treat Mourinho uh and whether they'll actually factor in that he'll have a, a terrible or a very fractious departure and use that to their advantage. Lawrence Aston Villa loses at the Stadium Light 3-1 to Sunderland. Bit of a collapse in the last 20 minutes of this one. Remy Guard seems to be not quite striking the balance. Aston Villa has not generated very many yet chances at all under him. Even the one this weekend was kind of a, a great athletic play by two players, but it really came out of nowhere. It doesn't seem like Aston Villa is making progress fast enough to give themselves a realistic chance of reaching reaching 17th place. No, he's rotating people in and out the side. Um, and, you know, I think he's struggling to find a front line that's going to be effective. Is it Gested? Is it Ayu? Um, you know, and, and who complements those guys? The goal was a nice break. And, you know, it, it essentially came from uh, Sunderland trying to impose themselves onto the game. And Villa broke on that. But they can't rely on that to happen for the rest of the season. And I think that's why Gested was bought at the beginning, uh, because Sherwood saw him as... Um, almost, I mean, uh, what... What's interesting is the mistakes that Sherwood made are essentially some of the same mistakes that maybe uh, Kenny Dalglish made when trying to rebuild the Liverpool squad. Uh, it looked as if it could have brought some sort of stability to the team, and you know that there, there was some form of um, uh, structure to the side. You know, Gusteb is the big man; he play alongside other people. But ultimately, when it, it when you bring in another manager who's trying to impose a philosophy or a culture on the club, it doesn't serve them very well because it's almost too obvious. Um, and they came up against a manager who plays what seems to be very obvious football in Sam Allardyce. And ultimately, it was just the jackhammer of Sam Allardyce over and over again that wore Aston Villa down. And they just didn't have the, um, they didn't have the longevity to be able to keep up. The problem is when the, the Aston Villa backline lose their head or they, they basically lose their fitness because it's not quite up to standard yet, then they, they aren't able to analyze the game and stay and basically control it. And so they lose out. Lawrence, I want to stay with you because one of the three matches this weekend where we saw a red card, West Brom against Stoke City, was decided shortly after Jeff Cameron was given a straight red card. Do you think what Jeff Cameron did this weekend, well, first, tell us what he did this weekend, but do you think it falls under uh, the definition of violent conduct? I think it does. He hit a guy in the back of the head, um, and as much as he was standing on his foot, you know, you just can't justify that, and it's a silly thing for him to do in the first place. They're probably going to make the argument that he was trying to move him because he was standing on his foot, um, but even then, you know, he could have pushed him in the back or whatever. Basically, violent conduct is violent conduct, and you can't really be seen to impose yourself on another team in an unfair way. If you raise your hand to someone's head, then you're probably going to leave the pitch. It's just the next uh, salvo in what's been a very bad year for Americans in the Premier League. Uh, Brad Guzon, Tim Howard, and Jeff Cameron, even before this red card, not really able to hold down a place in the Stokes side. Uh, one other match this weekend, another red card prevalent in this one. Norwich City, a 1-0 victory over Southampton. Their third win in four, but the one goal in this game came three minutes after Vincent Wanyama saw his second yellow card, Alex Tete scoring the only goal of the match. Going to take our last break right now. When we come back, we'll update you on what's going on in England's second tier, list our top fours, and then talk about the midweek action. The League Cup semifinal first legs are going to be on Tuesday and Wednesday. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk podcast. Like the Premier League, England's championship had a busy week with matches on Monday and Tuesday coming out of Boxing Day as well as matches this weekend. After those two rounds, the 24th and 25th of the season, the table in England's second tier looks remarkably the same as it did before. Middlesbrough, with wins over playoff-pushing Sheffield Wednesday and second-place Derby, asserted themselves as the league's likely winner, moving four points clear of second place with a game in hand. When will Aitor Karanka get a Premier League job? It's going to happen in five months. As for Derby, their midweek draw at Leeds keeps them in second place, leaving Hull one point back after Friday's win at QPR. Brighton, unbeaten for so long this season, lost twice this week and fell eight points off the top, with Burnley and Ipswich holding down the league's final two playoff spots. Back to the Premier League. Gentlemen, our top fours. Kartik, it's been a couple weeks since you gave people this reason to argue with you. Why don't you go first? Okay, I'm going to go... It, uh, based on form, boy, this is difficult. Uh, I, Arsenal is is up there. They're number one. Uh, West Ham is in the top four. So let's go uh, Arsenal, Leicester, West Ham, Spurs based on form. Or uh, three Spurs, four West Ham. 
end of the season, we're going to go Man City 1, Arsenal 2, Man United 3, Spurs 4. Leicester is, is sitting is lurking in fifth. So <laughs> if yeah, if one of those teams falls off, I'm ready to put Leicester in my end of the season top four. I think it says a lot about the Premier League that you are now willing to acquiesce that City might be your number one. I mean, it's been City has been your number one for many points this year, but as flawed as you see Manchester City is, you still see them being at the end of the season potentially the least flawed out of all these teams. I'm not sure that they're the least flawed. I'm not sure that they're the most worthy title winners. That would probably be Arsenal, but what what we do see is guys like Aguero and Torre who, who may not do much for an entire game, getting goals, getting critical goals, making critical, having those moments which uh, win win you titles. Yeah, uh, I mean Liverpool wasn't Liverpool was the better best team in the league both seasons. They finished second, but United won the title one year and City won the title the other because. They got. They had those moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you even see players like Fernandinho stepping it up. Where and in that point, uh, the game this weekend, you realize that City, their players, kind of knew that they needed to step it up to get three points. Um, my top four on form. I'll go with Spurs, then Arsenal, Leicester, and West Ham. So the same top four as Kartik, just in a different order. Uh, I don't have the same four at the end of the season. Although I probably would have the same top five. My four is a uh, fourth Leicester. Third Spurs, second Arsenal, first Manchester City. Lawrence, uh, I'm gonna go. This is it's hard to structure this one. Uh, in terms of the weekend, I'll probably go Arsenal, um, West Ham, Manchester United, and then Chelsea. Just because I don't feel the Crystal Palace are up to full strength. Come the end of the season, I think it's probably going to be um, Man City, Arsenal, Manchester United, Spurs. It's good that you mentioned that about Crystal Palace. I think they were missing four starters this weekend, something we would have mentioned if that game had actually been anything uh, close to a close game. Uh, Transfer season opened on Friday. We are now in the winter transfer window. Only two moves thus far, at least at the time of recording, that are really worth mentioning. Kartik mentioned one, Bournemouth getting uh, Juan Eturbe from Roma. Season-long loan with an option to buy. Eturbe almost ended up at Watford instead switching over to Bournemouth. Kartik, this shows the buying power of the Premier League, but also shows how a player like Eturbe, who was so sought after by Roma when they got him 18 months ago, I believe it was 18 months ago, um, now he's being loaned out to a second uh, bottom-half team in the Premier League. Yeah, I, I think it shows us both the buying power of the Premier League and, and kind of where Roma is. Turbe has played in the majority of Roma's Serie A matches this season. He's played, I think, in, in 13 or 14 matches, mostly coming off the bench. He was so good at Verona a few seasons ago, a player that has uh, a great uh, a touch on the ball, a good first touch, uh, t- can take guys out on the dribble, kind of a short, uh, quick player, mm-hmm. not the best finisher, which I think – is uh, is an issue, but in that Bournemouth team and the way they play, he fits perfectly, and I think he's a huge upgrade for them. Yeah, and he seems like exactly the type of person that the English media will fawn over, as if he's uh, some spectacular find because of his speed and his technique, right. like you said. Um, one other move is kind of a move. It's Norwich uh, making their Matt Jarvis loan from West Ham permanent. A couple of big rumors out there, too. We'll talk about them as they happen. But one that Kartik has noted in the notes here. Uh, Kartik, maybe you can talk about this a little bit. Leicester potentially getting Damari Gray from the second tier. Yeah, uh, he's been playing for Birmingham City the last few seasons. A player I think will eventually be a winger for England's uh, senior national team. A guy who's played very, very well for, for a Brum side that's... Uh, has been uh, decent in, in, in the championship, a team that doesn't have the resources to keep a team together or to buy players. Uh, he's come through the system and, and done very well. Exciting purchase for Leicester, and that gives them a little more depth uh, these five, as they make this push to try and stay in the Champions League spots in, in the top four. So exciting purchase. Uh, maybe another sad indicator, though, that, that Birmingham City is, is so far off from uh, being a top-flight team again that any time a guy does well there, they have to sell him even in January, to, in order to make the books, uh, um, make the uh, make ends meet um, in their books. Yeah, it is sad because Birmingham City right now aren't that far back of the top six in the championship, but losing somebody of that caliber obviously would hurt their chances to move up. Uh, gentlemen, let's talk about midweek action, not in the Premier League, but involving Premier League teams. The first trophy of the year is going to be cited in the coming months. The League Cup semifinals begin on Tuesday. Uh, Stoke City hosts Liverpool in that match. Then on Wednesday, Everton against Manchester City. 
Lawrence, let's go ahead and start with you. Stoke City versus Liverpool. You know, when this draw was made, I think we, at least I was arguing that Liverpool, if not co-favorites with Manchester City, were, based on the form that they were they had under Jurgen Klopp at that time, were the favorites in this competition. At this point, though, this matchup is looking more and more like a toss-up between them and the Potters. Yeah, basically so. I mean, if you look at the way that Liverpool play, the way that Stoke play, it's going to be down to whether Liverpool's pressing uh, works well against the Stoke team and whether... Stoke played the right kind of front line because I think Shakir um, basically Arnautovic will be the worry for this Liverpool team because they don't cope well mm-hmm. against big guys and they haven't coped well against big guys for a while and we've seen that play out you know play out against Watford just a few weeks ago and Liverpool tried to recover after that and you know essentially it was a, it was a better performance after that um, it, I, I think a lot of this will basically be about them getting it to the critical men and when I say them I mean Stoke um, so why 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 would Liverpool feel confident going into this one when they haven't managed to shut other teams down like this? Hmm. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, confidence does seem to be a growing problem with Liverpool at this point, or at least it should be. But maybe that's why you have a manager like Jurgen Klopp to kind of stoke those fires and inject some positivity back into the team. Uh, that that will be the first leg on Tuesday. The second leg happens two weeks later on Wednesday. Everton, Manchester City at Goodison Park, Kartik. I'm looking forward to this t- this game. These are two teams that I was reminded this weekend play two of the more aesthetically pleasing styles in the Premier League. Results be damned, especially for Everton. Uh, this does seem like an opportunity for Everton. I suppose you look at this four and you would say Manchester City on talent and to some extent on form would be the favorite here. But this is an opportunity for Everton to claim a very rare piece of silverware. Yeah, and Everton has come up short in the cup competitions when they've had a chance to win them in, in recent years. And that was David Moyes' great failing. They got to an FA Cup final, lost uh, to Chelsea. They got to an FA Cup semifinal, lost to a Liverpool team that they were much better than that season. And uh, Liverpool ended up losing to Chelsea in the final. Mm-hmm. So they've had their opportunities. And this is... Uh, this is important for, I think, Everton's brand to win a cup here here and there at some point because they uh, have not won a cup since the FA Cup final, since that Paul Rydock goal against Manchester United in 95. And it's, uh, it's one of those things where we're seeing second-tier teams, not second-tier, not uh, championship teams, but second-tier teams in the Premier League getting uh, cup tro- getting trophies, getting cups under their belt. The Swansea's, uh, Stoke has been to a final recently. Uh, obviously, Birmingham City, who we just talked about, uh, won the League Cup one year. And, and th- those sorts of sides are getting uh, get- getting to finals. Hull got to a final. Aston Villa got to a final last season. And for Everton, they seem to be always just outside the top four in the Premier League, yet not making the kind of cup runs you'd expect of them, considering where they are in the league. This is, I think, an important uh, uh, test, a great opportunity for them. And maybe Martinez, who has won an FA Cup, obviously with Wigan, is, is the right guy to get them through this. Well, after those games, we'll be coming back to you with a review show of the midweek action. Not so much a preview show of the FA Cup. I'm sure we'll talk about that, but we will be coming back to you with a show nonetheless. Until then, for Lawrence McKenna, the rest of the World Soccer Talk family, I'm Richard Farley. Kartik? Enjoy your football. The World Soccer Talk podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Audioboom, or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly. To get in touch with one of the hosts, you can reach out to them on Twitter. I'm Richard Farley. Kartik is KKFLA737. Lawrence is LOZCAST, Lawscast. And Nipun is Nipun Chopra7. Don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email. Richard at WorldSoccerTalk.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.